chapter 1. And if you haven't brought your own Bible and would like to use the one in the pew or the chair, under your chair, you can turn to page 886. We will wander through some passages in John just to give a little bit of a background and give some survey in the passages that speak of the Holy Spirit in this great gospel. Begin with chapter 1. And really, this passage is the one that I've I've taken the title from is the one who comes and baptizes with the spirit. We're going to focus in chapter seven on verses thirty seven and thirty nine, which we will get to. But we start here. Verse twenty nine. This is the verse that we've touched on the last couple of weeks. The next day, he that is John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose, I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the spirit descend and remain. This is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the son of God. If you'll turn a page or two to chapter three. Verse twenty five. Here's John as well, speaking of Christ. Now, a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he, that is Jesus, is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven You yourselves bear me witness that I said I'm not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. You can imagine the friend of the bridegroom trying to take center stage. uh, And he says, that is not me. I'm, I'm upholding and Seeking the bridegroom to to have his bride. Verse 31. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard. Yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God. For he gives the spirit without measure. That is, the father gives the son the spirit without measure. The father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. 
Whoever believes in the son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So you see in these two passages, he's the baptizer of the spirit. And here he has the spirit. Uh, The father gives him the spirit without measure. Then turn with me to chapter seven. This will be the passage we focus on today. Verse 37 of chapter 7. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given Because Jesus was not yet glorified. So here's an enlargement on this gift of the spirit. He will baptize us in such a way that out of our heart will flow rivers of living water. Then chapter 14. We'll read from 14. 15 and 16. In chapter 14, verse 16, I will ask the father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. Then the end of chapter 15, verse 26 And when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. And I'm simply going to read verse seven of chapter 16. 16, verse seven. I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Let us pray. Lord, as we are considering your names, your designations, your descriptions, we come to this glorious description of you found in all of the Gospels and repeated in Acts that you are the one who baptizes with the Spirit. Lord, may we know at least something of what this means. May we grow in that knowledge and may it help to transform us all the more this day. We will walk in new life. We will walk with new strength. We will walk with a new understanding of your love and your work in us through the mighty Holy Spirit. Oh Lord, we acknowledge you. That you are the giver of this spirit. And this spirit is none other than God. The maker of heaven and earth. The giver of life for all things. This God, God the spirit, has made us his temple. His dwelling place. His workplace. Where he is fashioning us after the image of Christ. Where he is producing his fruit of love and joy and peace and faithfulness and kindness and goodness 
and patience and humility. Here, the Lord Jesus is being formed in us. And Lord, it is so intimate that Paul can say, Christ lives in me. It is the life of Christ in us, for it is the life of Christ's Spirit that is in us. Lord, we rejoice in this. We're humbled by it. May we be upheld and amazed by this truth. Lord, may we realize its implications in our lives. May we give ourselves all the more freely to you and to your mission and to your love. For we pray it in the precious name of Christ. Amen. Would you uh, backtrack then to chapter 7, verses 37 through 39, which we will consider. It's a precious and amazing thing that this image uh, is given us that something is going to flow from us that is living, full of life. The sense of cleanness, the sense of life and strength and power literally flowing from us, flowing in from our innermost being. I used to uh, catch crawfish. I don't know what you call them here, but that was a huge hobby of mine as a kid. Uh, We regularly uh, trooped down to the woods that were right by our house and and found crawfish after crawfish. I'm surprised there were any there after a while, but they seem to continue to be there. But one of the great things you do, of course, is you, you, in a flowing stream, you pull the rock up, and then there's all this cloud of dirt and silt, and then it just all cleans away, and there is your little crawfish sitting under the rock. And I always think of that with this passage of the muddy, murky, even stinking water of our life that begins to be changed by the fresh, clean, living water that Jesus says is put within our innermost being. And so I want us to explore a little bit in the context of this feast, what this meant that Jesus would stand up at this feast and make such an incredible statement. To me, one of the greatest statements in all of Scripture, one of the most important ones in our day-to-day life. And I hope it can be life changing for you as it continues to be by God's grace in my own life. Now, this was the Feast of Tabernacles, a feast that lasted seven days. And some indicate that perhaps it lasted eight days. The the eighth final day is is maybe a a kind of uh, after not exactly afterthought, but kind of afterglow of the week. We're not sure if this uh, was the seventh day or the eighth day. But what is significant is that every day of this feast, this feast in which they celebrated the uh, wilderness wandering, they celebrated God's supply for them, God's grace to them when they were in the wilderness. And so they would build booths. Uh, They would build these little mini tabernacles uh, all around Jerusalem And they would be made of different materials and leaves. And they would also take leaves that were uh, called um, lulavs, uh, a bunch of willow and myrtle that was tied with palms. And and they would use them as they would march about and sing and dance and uh, flutes would play and all of this kind of celebration during this feast. Uh, A lot of uh, 
singing and feasting that went on for seven days. But one of the central things that happened every day in this feast was in the morning, the priest would go to from the temple to the pool of Siloam. And with a golden pitcher, they would dip in and receive the water and proceed to the temple, walk around the altar. And the seventh day, they would walk six or seven times around the altar. And then the water would be poured out with the wine offering of that morning at the time of morning sacrifice. Now, this was for several this this represented several things. One, it represented the water that broke forth from the rock in the wilderness. It was a celebration of God's abundant supply in the wilderness as he gave water to that uh, arid place. And in fact, he gave water when they would have uh, literally uh, died without that. And so there's this celebration of God's abundance in the wilderness. But it also pointed to God's abundance in the harvest, because this was a harvest celebration. And the pouring out of the water was a symbol of God's blessing to bring waters and rain. In fact, if it rained during the harvest, it was regarded as a good sign that they would have an abundant harvest. So these two things also were tied in with the third thing as they were bringing the water back to the temple, coming through the south gate, the trumpet would, would sound, the shofar, three times, joyously, uh, joyous blasts, and they would be associated with Isaiah 12, 3, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And so all of this became a picture of not just the rock pouring forth water in the wilderness, but what was regarded in the future as water that would break out from Jerusalem and supply all the nations. The water of salvation that would come to all the world by God's blessing. Many times in the Old Testament, there was this reference to what God will do in the final day of pouring water out. And it was a sign of his salvation. In Ezekiel 47, we have the great statement of how a water was going to flow out from the temple and pour forth and become a mighty river. And later in that chapter, it says on the banks on both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither. Their fruit will not fail. They will bear fresh fruit every month because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Glorious picture of water pouring forth from the sanctuary and supplying not only Israel, but the whole world. We have even in Revelation the fulfillment of this when it says in the new heavens and the new earth, there's the river of the water of life flowing from the throne of God and from the Lamb, And it speaks of fruit on both sides of the river. So in Ezekiel and finally in this fulfillment in Revelation, there's this sense of water pouring forth from the sanctuary. We have words like this in Isaiah 43. I will give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert to give drink to my chosen people. You see, he's using the picture of what he did in the desert to say spiritually, I will refresh my people with the waters of salvation. Or Isaiah 44, 3, I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. 
I will pour my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. Zechariah 13, 1. On that day, there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. Zechariah 14, 8. On that day, living water shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea, half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. So we could go to the Psalms where there's the report of what God did in the wilderness and a celebration of it. And here they are celebrating what God did in the wilderness and rejoicing in what he was going to do in the future for Israel. Now, they're not sure if Jesus stood up on the seventh day. At the time when the water was being taken around the altar seven times, or if he perhaps stood up on the eighth day when there was no water ritual, but stood up and said, I am the water, so to speak. Either way, it was, of course, strong and and highly effective. And it's emphasized it was on the last day of the feast, the great day. And they're not sure which of those days was considered that last day or the great day. But either way, Jesus is not just saying, hey, I'm that golden pitcher of water. That's not the point. But the point is, I am the rock that produced that water. I am the source of salvation. All of salvation is found in me. Just as in John chapter two, when he alluded to the fact that he was the new temple. He now is the temple. You can move the temple aside. I am the place of worship. I am the source of cleansing. I am the one who will make sacrifice. You see, all lines of the Old Testament converge in Jesus Christ. Every single image is found its, has found its fulfillment in him. So not only is he the temple, but he becomes the feast itself. He becomes the food. He's the manna in John chapter six. And now he says, I am the one who supplies the water. I am that rock that you celebrate. I am the supply of salvation. I'm the fulfillment of all of these passages that talk about the day when the fountain will be open. I'm that fountain. I'm that source. Of the water of salvation. It's interesting in the Jewish uh, thought, they describe the rock as following the uh, Israelites in the wilderness. And Paul picks up on this thought in a rather striking image in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 4, when he says, They all drank the same spiritual drink saying that that water symbolized a spiritual nourishment. It says they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Here's Paul regarding looking to that same analogy that even Jesus himself is making in this passage. And so the the whole point and celebration of this feast Jesus is now taking it to himself. He is the one that fulfills all of this. And so whatever these passages in the Old Testament said in the way of 
water going forth from the sanctuary, God pouring water on the thirsty land. All of these images of water coming to desert places and replenishing the land and replenishing his people is fulfilled in Christ, who says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And many commentators point out the fact that this there's no particular scripture that says out of his heart will flow rivers of of living water. But this is regarded then as the fulfillment of all of these passages that speak of flowing water being a blessing to God's people. But now he puts it in the most intimate way, one that's hard to even imagine or grip, because in a sense, this one who is the rock and is the source of water makes each one of us, in a sense, to be a rock. That his life is so a part of us that we well up with water because of the intimacy of the spirit dwelling in us. Because of his life being in us. And so it's remarkable that we are kind of made many rocks. As we draw from the one rock, we become small fountains of life welling up from within. And of course, this begins to be shared with one another. Um, And we encourage one another and build one another up in Christ. It's much the same as Jesus says is saying that he is the light of the world, but he can turn and say, you are the light of the world. And you think, Lord Jesus, you can't say those two things. You can't say that we're the light of the world. You are the light. He said, no, you are the light of the world in me. Through my strength, through my grace, you become uh, as you express my love and you proclaim my goodness and greatness and you proclaim and live out the gospel, you become light in a dark world. And so here there is that sense, not only that these waters supply us, but that there's an overflow as we begin to give ourselves away to others. As earlier, if you'll back up with to John chapter four, this sheds light on his statement to the woman of Samaria as he was speaking to her and he was at the well with her. She, of course, wondered, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink? In verse 9, from me, a woman of Samaria. And Jesus said, if you knew the gift, verse 10, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said, sir, you have nothing to draw water with. The well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty forever. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So this glorious source of water, this rock from whom we receive the salvation actually so becomes a part of us as he pours his spirit into our lives that it becomes life springing up from within us. As Ritterboss says, we will never thirst again because it becomes in that person a spring of water 
welling up to eternal life. Now, you'll notice then in verse 39, he this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Things were so transformed with the death of Christ and his exaltation, his resurrection and exaltation at the right hand of God, that we could say the age of the spirit. In fact, it says uh, it actually says that the, uh, this was the this was was spirit is, is a literal way that it's put here. It's called the era of the spirit. And though there's much about the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, much about the spirit in the Gospels in a unique way at the outpouring of Jesus Christ, it's an age of the spirit that had never been before. A pouring out of life and grace, a pouring out of an understanding of God and of Christ that had never come before. And so John is saying this would have its final fulfillment uh, when Jesus had been crucified and raised to the right hand of God and he pours out the Holy Spirit. This intimacy, this un, unhindered association with God, this this closeness with God of fellowship and an outpouring of grace that has no hindrance whatsoever. It came only as a result of the death of Christ, only as finally sacrifice was made. Sins were truly paid for. And now his grace comes to us with no obstacle whatsoever. It was only appropriate when Christ officially sat at the right hand of God and it was declared that his work was done and accomplished, that at this point to indicate that the spirit would be poured out. And now for 2000 years, we've been in this age of the spirit. Now, I would like to touch on three areas that. I want us to focus on concerning the work of the spirit when he wells up within us, when we have this, these rivers of living water, what will he be doing for us? What will be the result in our lives? Think of these three words, son, servant and witness, son, servant and witness. If you turn with me to Romans chapter eight, and if again, you've got the Pew Bible, it's page nine hundred forty four. I want to show that the central Thing that the Holy Spirit does for us and, and the way he is living water to transform our lives and refresh our lives is to bring home to our heart that we are loved by God. And without that, there's nothing else for us. That is the centerpiece of all blessing. He brings home to our heart that we are sons and daughters of God. And please don't be put, us, uh, put off by the fact that the mention here is sons. It's understood in this context that, that daughters, of course, women are included. 
But notice in verse 14, all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And most of you know that Abba is the child's word for daddy, uh, is the, the Hebrew word for daddy. Dada, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. So the Holy Spirit becomes living water in this most intimate way by convincing us, enabling us, causing us so to understand and trust in God as our Father that we can say from the bottom of our hearts with full assurance, knowing His love and His rejoicing over us in Christ, we can say, Daddy, Daddy. Now that is a living water to us. That is life itself. In the midst of any kind of suffering, any kind of hurt that we've had in our life, any kind of rejection, any kind of loss, any kind of separation, of loneliness, of pain, misery of any kind. And I think of our lives sometimes as just being one layer after another, going all the way back to childhood of different things that which we've both been victims and victimizers. We've been hurt Rejected, abused in so many ways, so many hard things have happened to us, but we brought some pain into other people's lives as well. And both of those things are terrible to deal with. Both the fact that you have been hurt and the fact that you know you've hurt others. And there's this layer of, of sin and misery and pain. And Jesus says, living water will come from within. And I love the fact that it digs to the deepest part of our being and begins to bring life and cleansing. And what is that life and cleansing at its root? Is to know fundamentally that I am a son or daughter of God. That I am adopted by Him. That I am accepted by Him. That I am welcomed by Him. That He rejoices over me. He delights in me in Christ. I see in Christ that all of my sins are taken away. And along these lines, would you back up just a page to see this similar work of the Holy Spirit described in Romans chapter 5 and verse 5. Notice how he puts it here. Hope does not put us to shame. That is, we are never going to be a shame of our hope. We're never uh, going to find that our hope is not founded on good uh, strength and, and a good solid rock because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. What a picturesque way to say that in our heart of hearts, we experience his love. We taste His love. We trust His love. We know this love to be true. And the Holy Spirit has brought it to bear in our hearts. He makes it real. He makes its comfort and assurance to feed and nourish us. And in the context, what is that, how is that love shown? Well, in verse 6, 
at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Verse eight, God shows his love while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. And if you take them together, God shows his love in Christ. The Holy Spirit pours the love of God in our hearts. The Holy Spirit brings to our hearts the full assurance as we trust in Christ. My sins are taken away in Christ. I am a child of God. God rejoices over me. He has unchanging favor toward me. His smile is always upon me because I am in Christ. It's interesting how Augustine uh, reflects on John 7. He says the belly of the inner man, you know, it says from your innermost being, it literally means belly or sometimes stomach or womb. It, It indicates the most intimate part. It's a synonym for heart. But Augustine says it's the conscience of the heart. Having drunk that water, then the conscience being purged begins to live. It has a fountain and will become a fountain itself. So he's getting to that idea that in one aspect of this living water is that our consciences finally find rest in Christ. We know there is no judgment toward us. We know that we are the beloved of God. We have the capacity to say, my daddy who loves me. And so, of course, not until the finished work of Christ can such assurance and intimacy be given on the heels of what he's done for us in Christ. And it's interesting, after his resurrection, as he appears to the disciples, he says, Peace be with you. Shalom. And it's the it's what follows from Jesus saying it is finished on the cross. Now is the fullness of blessing, wholeness. I can speak wholeness to you, completeness to you, unhindered blessing for you who are now become the children of God, my bride and my body. And that's why. I want to begin doing this at the beginning of every service is to greet you in the way that the epistles, uh, Paul greets the people when he says grace to you and peace from God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Pronouncing wholeness and completeness and acceptance and love and light from your father to you as children. So. You are sons of God and the Holy Spirit pours the love of God in your heart to convince you to be able to say, Daddy. And so I ask you, is this your approach to God? Is this your sense when you come to him in prayer that I'm fully accepted by God? Even as I bring my sin to him and ask for forgiveness, he fully, joyfully embraces me. All the time, every time, because I belong to Christ. It is the work of the Spirit. It is what He intends to do for you. And I would say any other work, any other approach to God is not ultimately the work of the Spirit. It's not what the Spirit wants to do in your heart. He wants you to be able to say from the heart, Daddy. That's his work. That's what God wants to accomplish for you. That's what Christ died for you to accomplish, is that you might be able to say that to God at all times. And it's from that known love of God, it's from that 
taste of his love and assurance of his love that you become a servant of his. Notice, as Paul continues here in Romans 8, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Because we can say Abba, because we can call him daddy and know his love for us and feel completely folded in with him and that his smile is upon us, then we're free to lose everything for his sake because we're his beloved. You see, this kind of suffering servanthood doesn't come so much as we decide that we're going to gut it out and stick it out. Although at times, of course, we just have to commit to that. But it comes as a result of you knowing that you're a son of God, a daughter of God. It comes as a result of the Spirit so working in you. You you know and taste this intimacy with God. And so you begin to let go of any concern over what you may lose in this world. Because you know you're beloved of God. And so isn't it interesting as Peter talks about the suffering, and I'll just read this to you in 1 Peter 4. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. It's a sign of the spirit resting on you. Enabling you to gladly embrace and rest in God's goodness and love and be willing to suffer for this God who loves you. It's a sign that the the, the spirit of glory rests upon you. And really, this is a picture of the glory cloud of the Old Testament. As the glory cloud was on the people of Israel, the cloud by day and fire by night, showing the presence of God. And he's painting this picture for us. It's, it's as though right in the midst of your suffering, if you could see spiritually, here's the glory cloud, the glory cloud of the spirit working in your life, bringing the water of life so that you are so feasting on the love of God that you can resist even those who would put you to death because you're safe in his arms. You're loved by him and nothing else matters, but that you're loved by this precious God. You can say, Abba, Father. And it's amazing that these sufferings are called the sufferings of Christ. Sharing in Christ's sufferings. So identified the great privilege and glory and honor and dignity that you so belong to Christ. That now you're sharing in the same kind of sufferings as they rejected him. Because you follow him and love him and are identified with him. You're suffering with his sufferings. The same kind of sufferings. And it's also interesting when it says the spirit of God rests on you. It's the same word in the Greek translation of Isaiah 11 that says the spirit of the Lord will rest upon Messiah. So the same spirit that rests upon Christ rests upon you, brothers and sisters. You are identified with Christ. The glory cloud is upon you. You belong to your daddy, your God. And he loves you and embraces you. And even if you lose everything, what does it matter? Because the glory of the Spirit is upon you. You see, we're able to suffer because we know his love as our father. 
Because of our intimate and precious relationship with Him, we become His willing servants to do whatever He says for us to do, whatever it costs. And that's the same thing in 2 Corinthians 5 when Paul is saying, hey, we're actually fools. We've become fools for Christ. He says, the love of Christ governs us. That love controls us. It makes us do crazy things. It makes us lose our life because we're just taken up with that love of Christ. And in the next verse, he says, we no longer live for ourselves, but we love for him. We live for him who died for us. You see, the love of God in Christ has been poured out in his heart. He's so convinced of it. He says, I don't live for myself. I live for this one who loved me and gave himself for me. Well, in that way, of course, we're not only sons and servants, but we become witnesses. We become witnesses. And I'll just leave you with this last uh, passage in John chapter 21 or chapter 20. Jesus comes to the disciples and he says, peace be with you. And he says, as the father has sent me. Even so, I'm sending you. And remember, we dealt with this as Jesus is the sent one. The most amazing thing is now we are the sent ones. We've been sent by him. And as Jesus showed forth the father, so we in some amazing way will show forth Christ. And as he said, if you reject me, you reject the father. He even says in John 13, if they reject you as you represent me, they reject me. So we in some way are so closely associated with Christ that as the father sent him and he manifested the father some way, we're going to be sent by Christ and manifest Christ. And when he said this, he breathed. Literally, it doesn't say on them. It just says he breathed and said, receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is given so that we might go forth and be sent as he was sent by the Father. And even as the Spirit enabled him to bear witness and enabled him to suffer, so he will enable us to bear witness and enable us to suffer. This is your glory. The glory cloud rests upon you, brothers and sisters. It's the sign of his intimate love. And within you flow rivers of living water. This will supply you in every part of your life. And I would encourage you, whatever difficulty you face in terms of your own personal growth, in in terms of wanting to be more and more like Christ, wanting to turn away from sin in every way, continually trust in the one who says from within you will well up rivers of living water. Tremendous change is available for you and for me by the grace of, of God. It is it goes deeper than anything else in us. As I've said before, it's not on the surface. It goes deeper than anything in you. All of your sin, all of your pain, all that you've ever gone through. And it begins to well up and change you by His grace. His Spirit is all-powerful. And He promises this not to people who have it together, but to people who are helpless. He says, He who believes in Me, He who believes in Me, let us pray.